0: good morning my friends. I hope you are well. Flip over if you wouldn't mind to 2 Corinthians 8. If you uh, think about it today uh, I've been at the Dunes camp since Wednesday uh, doing their, uh, helping out with their uh, that's how tired I am. What are we doing? High school. Yeah the high school camp or retreat or whirlwind or whatever it might be. But all that to say, I appreciate some prayers. Uh, You know, I'm a pretty cynical person. And, uh, you know, a lot of times people, and it's a fault, it's not a boast. But a lot of times people will say, you know, oh, God's doing this great work. And because I'm sinful, I'm like, really? Is he really doing a great work? I mean, I'd like to think so. uh, But I always have this kind of, I don't know, brokenness or check or whatever. Uh, but I actually really think that God's doing a great work. <laughs> I mean, who knew? Who knew the Holy Spirit had power? <laughs> but uh, no, it's been it's been pretty great, you know. And, and I just kind of watched the progression, because uh, you know when the, the kids get there at about I think they got four four o'clock right around there on Wednesday. You know, every person that walks in, not every, but the vast majority, they're just super cool, super cool, and uh, everything around them is lame, and you know, just like we were. And then, uh, you know, like after night one, you know, you get a few like worshiping T-Rexes where they're like, right? And then night two comes by and somebody gets a little crazy and is like, you know, and then, uh, you know, last night, by the time we got to last night, I would say 90% of the teens are just uh, essentially have their arms around each other's shoulders and they're just singing and uh, coming up for prayer and so it's just been, it's been cool to see. Um, and God's doing a great work. So if you, would, if you think about it, tonight's the last night, and so after this, um, I'll be leaving here, going back up there, and then uh, they shove off on Monday morning. So tonight we're just going to talk about, uh, last night I just talked to him about essentially like how do I move on from a camp high, and, uh, and then tonight we'll be talking about the Holy Spirit's power and how uh, he wants to fill them. So I'll take prayer for that. So because of that, I take no responsibility for what I say here this morning. <laughs> Just kidding. So 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we're going to try to do the impossible here, and we're going to try to go through two chapters. I know, I know. <laughs> Mock as you will. That's fine, I deserve it. But it's actually, it's one collective thought. It's, it's the largest, actually, in the entire Bible, but specifically in the, in the New Testament, it's the largest section on giving. So, you're thinking, if you're thinking to yourself today, oh, every time I go to a church, they're talking about giving, this is your own fault because we go through the scripture verse by verse and it's just where we happen to be today. Um, having said that, I want to bring a little context here. You know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is uh, writing back to them, as we've been discussing, by review. And he's challenging, he's encouraging them in some things and, and in a sense, um, thanking them or, con- I don't want really to say congratulating, but, you know, affirming, like, hey, you guys are. The changes that you're making in your church and how you're loving people and caring and moving on, it's, it's great. And he's very excited about it and he's, he's challenging other things. So contextually, there's some pretty hard things that Paul says in here. And the reason I want to uh, kind of lay out the land a little bit is that Paul is not arbitrarily writing to the Corinthians in this case, just saying, you guys got to pull yourselves together. You're not giving enough. We're going to close the doors. We're going to give till it hurts, you know, plant the seed or, you know, something like that. He's actually writing them back because about a year prior to this, they had committed to giving a gift that was to be taken to the people in Jerusalem that were tremendously suffering uh, as far as uh, financially. So, uh, you know, Jerusalem has a pretty interesting start, or the church does, right? It's in Jerusalem. It's during the uh, Pentecost. And what happens? 3,000 people get saved, right? So people just start to rally around each other and they begin to sell off their land. They begin to just take everybody into their home and you have this kind of, it's a pretty incredible picture, this communal living where everybody's just making sure that everybody else basically has food and a place to lay their head, right? So later on, there's famine, and and you have more and more conversions where people are coming to Christianity. So for us, if we come to Christianity, our family may reject us. They may think that we're crazy or whatever. But for the most part, and I'm not trying to exclude anybody's experience, but for the most part, we don't sustain too much persecution. Mostly we just get thought about as morons. But for many, in, in Jerusalem at this time, you're a Jew, and you're converting to Christianity. Right, so the penalty is far more substantial. It's it's way more like if you were say in like Jordan or you were say in Iran or Iraq, present day, and you converted to Christianity. Not so much the honor killings that occur in in, like the Muslim faith, but the absolute uh, ban from family, the the no longer visiting the businesses, and so that's what's happening to these Jews. They're they're getting saved and they're becoming impoverished. Because no longer are they allowed to have a booth, say, uh, in Jewish areas. No longer are people coming to their business and trying to get business from them because they've forsaken the law as they were viewed as doing, right? And so because of that, and then famine in the land and different things, persecution, the, the churches and the people at the churches are becoming very poor. So about a year prior to this, Paul had gone through and talked to all the churches About donating and about collecting to bring a gift of money to the Christians that were in Jerusalem. Does that make sense? This is important because when he starts to share some hard things, we can't interpret that as Paul is just kind of like launching insults at them. But he's actually, the the whole, or one of the major themes of chapter eight and nine is you said you would do this, now it's time to do it. Does that make sense? So it's kind of with that context and that background as we jump into chapter 8 that we'll, we'll read it. I'm actually going to start in chapter 7 for context sake. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and in verse 13. He says, By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you. And you have not embarrassed me. I love that. It cracks me up. <laughs> Sorry. He says, I boasted, uh, uh, boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence In you. So remember, there's turmoil, there's false teachers, Judaizers, all these things, a ton of stuff going on in Corinth. So at one point, Paul does send Titus there and Titus comes back. But what he's saying is, when I sent Titus to you, I really talked you up to Titus. I told Titus that you guys are a solid church, that you would take care of him, that you'd love him, you know, all these things, because they had really repented from his, the first letter that we have, right? Because the first letter is virtually, is probably 95% correction about some fairly serious issues that are going on in the church. So they have they've repented from all, I mean, I'm speaking generally, I wasn't there, but it seems that all the things that Paul addressed, they have said, you know what, you're right, we need to stop suing each other. You're right, we need to, we need to stop trying to show off with our spiritual giftings. We need to, in our meetings, not to be just speaking in tongues so everybody can see us, but to instead to be making sure we're edifying people, right? So he goes through all these things and he says, but you guys have, you've, you've repented from that. And I sent Titus to you and I, and I boasted about you. And when Titus got there, he saw that I was right. Titus was so encouraged because he saw that you had obeyed my letter. Now I think for some, for some of us, and, and myself included, as soon as the word "obey" and religion comes out, we're we, we we immediately go like the Roshnishes or something. And we're like, oh, we're going to poison a salad bar. You know, whatever. Like some sort of idea. But the idea is that Paul is writing them as an apostle saying, these sins, th- these destructive behaviors that you're doing, being drunk at church, not giving food to the poor people when they come to your church. He says, he says, because you're doing these things, you're bringing shame. So they obeyed Paul in their repentance. Does that make sense? So Paul's just excited. He's amped because he's not telling them weird stuff, you know? Uh, yeah, nothing he had to say was like this very, like some sort of bizarre or covetous thing. He's just saying, this is how you can walk with Christ. And they begin to walk that way. So he's, he's boasting to them about the fact that he boasted about them and that it was all true. And that it encouraged Titus also. Verse, or chapter 8, verse 1 says this. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overwhelming joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people." Now again, this is where the context is important. When we keep when we keep reading, he's going to explain about why he's talking about Macedonia. So if we had a map and we looked, Macedonia is essentially northern, it's it's modern-day northern Greece. And that's why you read about he goes to the Bereans and Philippi and these places. That's that's Macedonia. Macedonia, it was not a very affluent place. There wasn't a lot of money there. Uh, And and from extra biblical historical sources, there's a good chance there's actually famine and other uh, problems, uh, uh, financial problems and and so forth, economic problems that are happening in Macedonia. So Corinth is in the very south of Greece. It's on this little isthmus uh, that's in the very south of Greece. And later on he notes that they're in Achaia. So Achaia is kind of this giant island that is south of Greece. And then you have the rest of Greece. And Corinth is right in this little strip of land. Corinth is... Exceedingly affluent. Lots of money in Corinth. And the reason being, it was one of the largest trade hubs in all of Greece. Because it was, since there was such a giant island underneath them, and there was the mainland above them. And so you of have Italy over here. I'm sure you're picturing this great. Right? So here they are. Sea travel and sea trade would actually have to pass through Corinth. But Corinth is land. So they actually devised a way with logs and ropes that the boats would come, these you know, ancient ships, and they would drag these ships over the logs, over the, uh, the isthmus, to the other side, to the other body of water. But that cost money. So ship operators, captains and companies and whatnot, they had an option. They could either sail like something pretty substantial, uh, hundreds of nautical miles around this direction to try to get north, Or they could pay this fee and have their ship dragged over to the other side. So most, it was kind of like the Panama Canal. Most decided, hey, I'll pay the fee and I'll just get dragged over this area. The other thing that happened, so that developed a lot of money for Corinth as a city. Uh, The other thing that happened, uh, well, there's a lot of uh, uh, ways that, that individuals made money there. But another big part was that you had all those goods. So a lot of people would just come to Corinth Like we would have Seattle or Portland or Long Beach, California, something like that. They would just come to there. They would offload the cargo. And then there were, because it was such an established uh, city in Greece, and then later on Rome conquers Greece, and they they develop all the roads and so forth that the Romans were famous for. They're still there today, actually. You can still walk on a lot of Roman roads uh, that were built 2,000 years ago. And so the people would just bring their goods there, And then they send those goods off to be sold. And so you have tariffs and all that to say is huge trade hub, lots of money. So Paul is writing to them and he's noting them that your brethren in Macedonia, that God did a great work through them. And we'll talk about comparison because comparison can can be unhealthy also. But in this case, he's, he's making the point, he says that he wants them to know, he wants the Corinthians to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, the word, if you've been you know, around church for a while, you've probably heard the word grace before. Uh, the Greek word being be uh, charis, or it's unmerited favor, right? Favor that God has for individuals. So in this, but it's, it's used in a couple different contexts. And, and in this particular context, it's not that God had unmerited favor for Macedonians, although that's true, right? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God has favor for every human being on the planet. But he's not communicating that here. There's multiple times throughout the scripture that where it talks about that this was a gracious person, or this person had the grace of God, or God was doing a gracious work, right? So the idea here is that the Macedonians, through something that God had been working out in their life, had a graciousness about them, and they wanted to help other people. You know, one of the things about, you know, if you've ever been super hungry, most of us that have ever gone through something like that, are happy to help people who are hungry, right? If you felt need in your life before, you are oftentimes just naturally more willing to, to part with something. So that could have been part of it because they, they knew real poverty. It's also the fact that God's working in their life. And, and you know, part of the uh, even the fruit of the spirit is being a, 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 is giving, having a, a gift of giving and being able to give. So, but he's pointing out to, to Corinth this incredibly affluent place. We know that there's many wealthy people that go to the Corinthian church because in 1 Corinthians, he tells the wealthy people, stop having potlucks and eating all your food in front of poor people and not giving them any food. You're shaming them. All right? So we know that there was money at the church. We're not making stuff up here. So Paul, he's pointing out, he says, look, these churches that are going through a severe difficulty they decided that they wanted to give. It says that they, their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So there was something that they understood about poverty Then, they, when they heard about what's happening in Jerusalem that first, you know, about a year ago, they say, we're in. Evidently, and this, I want to be careful here because we don't want to read too much into the passage, but in verse 4 it says, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing. So whether Paul was like, whoa, come on, guys. You guys have nothing. Keep your money, or however it went down. But for some reason, the Macedonian churches went to a place where they felt like, no, Paul, please let us give money. You know, there's lots of types of giving. This is money. So he's saying, please let us give money. Let us help the Jerusalem churches. We want to be part of this so bad. That's what's happening. And in verse 5, he goes on from there, and he says, And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us also. So Paul, in between chapter 8 and chapter 9, is going to talk about quite a few aspects of being a giving person. And the first aspect that he notes about these people that that they had a gracious lifestyle, that God had established something in their life and that they were gracious to others. They had a grace about them. The second wing is that, they, that somehow uh, the dynamic of them being impoverished made them want to give all the more. And now he says that they were yielded to the will of God. That he says there that they gave themselves first of all to the Lord. And this is, I think, a key component if we're going to be giving people. Let me just make a side note here. This is not a sermon so that you guys can give more. We have a very generous church, and we're not j- banging the war drum here so that, you know, try to get more money out of you guys. That's, that's not the, the goal at all. And just to let you know, I have no idea who gives and who doesn't. I never look at the money. I have a card that I can buy supplies for the church and so forth, but it's other people that count the money. Uh, I think twice in my life, or maybe three times, I've seen one check, and it was when we first started it, I didn't know you could send bank checks in the mail. And so I got this letter from the bank, and I was like, uh-oh. And then I opened it, and it was a check, so from someone else. All that to say is I really don't want to go through this and people feel like, oh, you're trying to get money out of me. Keep your money. God is faithful, you know, and, and we have a very, very generous church. We're just talking about what Paul said to Corinth. That's all we're talking about, and we're relating it to us and how we can be, uh, as individuals and as a group, uh, a people that give. Uh, so forgive me for the side note, but I, I really want to not have that kind of concern. So he says there, they gave themselves to the Lord. When we give ourselves to the Lord, what does that mean? Well, number one, it's, it's like an offering, right? We're saying, hey, I'm yours. You can do with me what you will. So if I'm given to the Lord, and, and obviously this is a process, right? We get saved, and, and then there's times where we're like, I'm the Lord's. I am 100% the Lord's. And then, whether it's temptation or whatever, something occurs in our life, and we're like, eh, "I'm good for now," right? But then the Lord gets a hold of our heart again, and we go, "No, I'm the Lord." So we're not saying that this was a once-for-all thing, and they were just—they never. No, they were as a habitual life saying, "I'm God's; He can have His will in my life." So that's the first step. If we're going to be cheerful givers, which is where we're going here, what it says, is the idea that I am the Lord's and everything he's ever given me is also his. right? And so my paycheck is the Lord's. My house is the Lord's. right? My car is the Lord's. What does that mean practically? It means if God calls me, for example, in, in uh, uh, one of the huge emphasis for church leadership in 1 Timothy 3 is hospitality. Right, so one and what we see the the huge emphasis that we see in the beginning of the church is hospitality, right? The church didn't grow because everybody had a Bible. No one had a Bible. No one, very few people even owned a Torah. The church didn't grow because people, you know, painted Bible verses on benches, which is fine. I'm not criticizing that. There were no Bible verses in the Old Testament. There weren't any verses yet. The verses hadn't been installed in Scripture yet. That was much later. It grew. Because people were like, oh, you know Jesus? I know Jesus. Do you want to come over and have lunch with me? And then they sat down and debated Calvinism. No. (laughs) They just sat down and loved each other. Right? Because everybody else hated them. (laughs) Everybody else is like, you're forsaking Jehovah. You're for you know. They just got together and they loved each other. It's what they did. And they did it without the Bible, without a bunch of structure. I'm not advocating for structureless church. I'm not saying that's where we want to go. I'm just saying that that's how they did it. They did it with love and with hospitality. So when we say things like, my car is the Lord's, that means that I can pick someone up and go to church because it's not my car. It's not my fuel. If someone needs a ride, I can go get them. That means that if there's someone hurting in the body, I can have, you know, I can provide maybe some food for them because it's not my food, it's not my house. Now, there's, there's wisdom, right? So, we're not saying there's no wisdom, and we're going to get into that too. You know, I, I don't, like, personally, my wife hates this. I always pitch up, pick up hitchhikers when I'm by myself. I always do. If I see someone on the side of the road, I pull over and I pick them up. And I'm like, captive audience, baby, you know, <laughs> how are you doing? I don't lecture them or something. I don't, they probably woo the day, but I don't lecture them. But I say, oh, what are you doing? How's it going? What's life up to? Really? Why are you hitchhiking? Oh, what are you looking for? Really? Have you ever found completion? Have you ever found it? No, no, I'm well, you know, I have. Usually, <laughs> can I tell you what? So I was it. But you know what? If I have my kids in the car, you know what I don't do? I don't pick up hitchhikers. I do it. I don't. I don't, I don't pick up female hitchhikers because I don't want to be alone in my car with a female. I've done it one time, and it was because some poor lady on my street, the rain was pouring, and she's like under this tree like, and I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I texted my wife, and I was like, I'm picking up a lady hitchhiker. So all that to say is we have wisdom, right? If I'm by myself, I'm glad to hang out with uh, people that talk to themselves or whatever. But you know what? I'm not going to invite them into my home to spend the night, right, because there's wisdom, but it's, it's, those are things because I, you know, I, I established that standard for myself because I believe that my first calling is to my family, to protect and love them, but then after that, everything else is the Lord's, right, so that's how we practically look at things and say, hey, this, this is not my stuff, this is the Lord's stuff, So Paul is saying, he said, first they gave themselves to the Lord, and then he says, then by the will of God also to us. And this can be one of those statements that may be great on us, like, oh, the will of God was for them to be, in a sense, listening or obedient or devoted to Paul? Yes. As an apostle, as an authoritative figure, which I am not referring to myself as, but as Paul in that scenario, he was leading the charge among the Gentiles for the New Testament. So when he calls them and he says, hey, these are some things that need to change in your church. And again, he often quotes the Old Testament to do that. He's showing them this is God's will for you. So he's 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 thankful and he's encouraging them that by the will of God that they yielded to him and his brethren, to Titus and the visit and so forth. Verse six says, so we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love—we uh, in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now, so he, he tells them, he says, we urge Titus. So when Titus in this, at some point comes to visit them, they told Titus, when you go there, make sure they complete the commitment that they made. Make sure they finished what they said they would do. Did you guys catch that? That's what he's saying. He sent Titus to say, you need to finish what you said you would do. And he says, and then he, he, he shows them, he goes in verse 7, and he says, you excel in all these things faith speech and knowledge those are lists that uh, uh, excuse me parts of a list that come out of the manifestations of the spirit which we have this in 1 Corinthians right in his first letter when he starts the first letter that's virtually all correction he starts it by saying god's doing a great work in you you have all the spiritual giftings there God wants to bless you. God's going to keep working in your body. This, these incredible uh, encouragements that he gives them. So he says, because you have all this, the faith, the speech, the knowledge, that you have this earnestness. Notice he doesn't call into question. He's not sarcastic. He's like, oh, you're so earnest, but it's been a year. He just says, like, you have an earnestness. And he goes, so when we sent Titus, we told him, make sure that since you have all this going for you, don't lack in the giving. He's just encouraging them. You said you would do this. It's been a year. Now it's time for you to do it. And so we sent Titus to you to encourage you to complete that. He goes from there in verse 8 and he says, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty, Might become rich, so he gives two examples here, and he says something that could be maybe a little bit could feel dicey to us. He says, "I am not commanding you," so you know how he's not saying you have to do this. He's not saying you have to give. He says it, but what he says is, "I want you to. I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others." That's kind of rough, right? Now, it's been wisely said that comparison is the thief of joy, right? And we agree with that, that if we're continually comparing ourselves, if we're continuing going on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and we continually look at the pictures that everybody posts on their best day, right? Nobody takes a picture that says, you know, with their hair all crazy and like some ripped, uh, you know, tank top on that says, ignoring God's prompts today, Right? Everybody takes pictures of their Bible and their coffee and they're like, snuggling up with Jesus today. (laughs) Which is fine. It is what it is. But you know, no one's just like, ignored the Spirit today. You know, nobody takes those pictures, right? So when we make comparisons, we come to this conclusion where we're like, everybody walks with Jesus all the time and has perfect families and has no conflict and has just, they're rich and fun all the time, except me. So that, when we do that, that's a thief of our joy, right? Or if we look at someone else, we say, oh, they're a better this than me, or they're a better that than me. Or maybe even worse, we go, well, I'm a better everything than them. You know, whatever it might be. But when we do that to ourselves and to people, when we have those kind of comparisons, that will never be helpful. But in this case, what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, your affluent church made a commitment to provide for this church that's suffering deeply. deeply. That commitment that you made motivated these extremely impoverished churches that are going through a very hard time and they already gave their gift, right? That money from them has already been collected. And so he's saying, I want to encourage you that these people were able to make good on their commitment with nothing. That you should make good on your commitment. There is healthy example We can see people in our life that are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled with the Word. They're filled with love, and we see how they operate with others. And instead of saying, "Oh, you know," comparing ourselves, like, "Oh, they're better," or "They're this," they can be examples instead, where we say, "Wow, I see that in them, and I want to emulate that." Right? I see how they treated me, and I want to emulate that, or I don't want to emulate that. I don't. I don't want this as part of my life. So there is a good place, for example, Paul says things like, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. Right. So when we observe people in our lives or concepts in the scripture where we say, I want that, that is healthy. It is unhealthy when we try to ascribe everybody's life as being perfect or worse than ours or something like that and then make a judgment with it. You see what I'm saying? You guys see the difference there? So Paul is just saying, I'm comparing you to these churches. We might find that offensive uh, because pretty much in our society, if someone says anything negative to us, it's, it's, it's usually pronounced as hate and terrible and all this. But Paul is just telling them, look around you. Look what God is doing. Look what God has done in Macedonia with nothing. Now imagine what you guys could do through the grace of God with a gracious gift. That's what he's doing. It's it's not harmful to be challenged in that way. The second example he gives in verse 9 is kind of the ultimate Sunday school mic drop. It's Jesus. And he says that Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. So Jesus, he left heaven, which we have some imagery of what heaven was like. It seems like a very pleasant place. Right? Seems like a happy place. Seems like everybody's pretty stoked. There seems like there's a lot of, you know, you look at the, the throne in Revelation, and it's got like an emerald hue around it and a diamond hue around it, and then you have, you know, uh, the you know the, the 24 elders, all this different imagery we have in heaven that it makes it an incredible place, right? Not to mention the fellowship with God and, and the, the receiving, being completely loved and, you know, all the different things. So Christ, who is rich in all of that, Came here, which feels a little different than heaven is described, right? Here we have conflict. Here we have hatred. So he goes from being from from loving people and interacting with people, souls in, in heaven, to coming here to be sweaty and get spit on, to be dirty and sandy, to be flayed open, to be crucified. So the picture that Paul gives is that look at what Jesus did. That he forsook everything that would in riches and became poor so that we could have all of the riches, right, in Christ. So the first example is that God's grace has done this great work in other people and he wants to do that in you too. And the second example is look how Jesus lived for us and we want to emulate that. From there, he says in verse 13, our desire is not that others might be relieved. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a part. In verse verse 10, he says, and here is my judgment about what is best for you. Is that great on you? Paul writes him and says, I'm going to tell you what my opinion of what you should do is. That's like fully anti-American. I'm very pro-America. I love America. I've only been to a couple other countries that were first world countries, and I like this one the best. But let's be honest. For many of us, our culture is based on rebellion. You're going to tax our tea? Watch this. Right? Hold my tea and watch this. You know, a big part, if you read some of the letters between uh, the forefathers and and, uh, England, a big part was that the United States wanted to move east in in, in the colonies. And the king of England said, no, stay where you're at. Don't mess with the indigenous people. And we were like, no, we're not going to do that. So like a lot of what happened is our country is founded on rebellion. And it was, it was propagated in the, in the churches from pulpits. Where guys like Thomas Jefferson, who didn't even believe the Bible, would come to churches and preach from different verses about how we should take and do these different things and, and preach rebellion. Now are you anti-America? Not at all. Did God do something great even though we had a revolutionary war that was based on wanting to expand east for the most part? Because religious freedom was already a thing. Once the pilgrims left England, it's not like King George followed them over and was like, stop being Protestant. It was mostly about land and money. And when someone told us we couldn't, we were like, nah, bro. We're going to do us. And we have a great nation, and I'm not disappointed by that. I'm just trying to point out that a big part of our nation's tradition is rebellion. And it's in us also. Or somebody writes us a letter and says, let me tell you what I think you should do. We're like, Murkah, no you didn't, right? But here's Paul, because he cares about what God is building, and he cares about what these, uh, how the churches in Jerusalem are doing. He cares about how the Corinthians are doing. He cares about God's kingdom being built, and he just says, I want to tell you what I think you should do in this situation. He already told them they didn't have to do what he said that he thought they should do. So he says here, this is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So evidently they made some promises and and perhaps some translations differ on this. Perhaps they gave a little bit of their promise. But he's telling them, you you were the first one to say, we are all in on giving to Jerusalem. But then he says, you haven't done it. You haven't finished. So all these Macedonian churches that are going through massive trials, they have made good on their promise. But you who have an incredible amount of money in your church, just to speak crassly, you guys have not done what you have said you would do. That's what he's saying to Corinth. So it's very pointed. So he says, what I think you should do, I think you should do what you said you would do. And I think you should finish this. That's what he's saying. And then he goes on from there and he says, look, I'm not telling you to give beyond what you can. I'm not telling you to impoverish yourself. He says the gift that you give is just based on what you have and not what what you don't have. God's not asking you to sell everything. He's not asking you to live in a trash can. He's not asking you to become homeless. He's not doing that. He's saying, make good on what you said you would do according to what you can do, right? That's all he's saying. He goes on in verse 13, he says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed. He says right there, we're not trying to make sure that everybody else has your money, but then you guys become impoverished. That's not the goal at all. He says, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty uh, will supply what they need. So that, in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. So Paul goes on to say, we're not trying to impoverish you and try to give it to them to make them wealthy. We're not trying to make your life hard so that these people can have a bunch of you know, uh, money and stuff. He says, what we're trying to do We're trying to make it so that there's equality. Now, in in 1 1 Timothy 6, when Paul's writing to Timothy, he makes a a little statement. And it's a different context. So I'm just taking something from a different context and and making an application here. And what he said was, with food and raiment, we will be content. As a servant of God, he says, if you have food and you have clothes, then there should be contentment with that. And that's probably a whole other sermon that we could deal with another day because that's probably an atomic bomb of difficulty for us in our flesh. But he says that's what we're to be content with. So if we look at what Paul is doing, he's not saying, Corinthians, sell everything you have so I can put these guys in upscale Jerusalem condos you know, in the nice neighborhoods or whatever. What he's saying is, let's make sure these guys have food and clothes. Let's make sure there's equality, that everybody in Jerusalem gets to eat, that everybody in Jerusalem gets to have some clothes. And this is at a time where if you have, uh, you know, two, two like man robe things, you're rolling deep. If you have a change of clothes, you're doing really well for yourself. If you were to have like Sunday shoes or something, they weren't even a thing yet. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying like if you have more than one shirt, you're in, I'm not making any standards for us. I'm just saying that Paul's not, he's not advocating for this huge thing. He's just saying, let's make sure that there's equality in the churches and these people aren't going completely without and we're just living in this complete excess. That's what he's saying. So from there, as we move forward, he says... Uh, he gives the example. And this is, so this is our third kind of concept. He says, As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. This is a quote from when the manna began to appear for the, in the Old Testament. So if you remember, Israel gets brought out of Egypt. They kind of snack on what they brought out of Egypt for a while. And then as they're gathering wandering through the desert, eventually God starts to provide, provide them manna. It's this thing that, that looked similar. It was, it was like a wafer, and it tasted like honeycomb. And so every morning, when they got up in the morning, the dew uh, from the night before would leave this honeycomb on the ground. And so what they found was, what what God told them through Moses was, just take what you need. And the scripture tells us that there there were people that when they came out of their tent, they gathered a ton. And they made sure they had a, a bunch. And everybody who did that never had anything left over is what the scripture says in the Old Testament. They they never had leftovers. They gathered a ton, they never had leftovers. And then it says there were other people that just went out and gathered what they felt they needed. And those people always had an abundance. So the implication and 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 the application and the reality of what happened in the Old Testament is that if you, out of fear, continued to try to stack to yourself, you ended up with just enough to not be hungry. But if you just went outside and said, well, you know what? I just want to take what I need. I'm not going to rip off the manna from Bob's tent over there. I'm just going to take what I have. Then you never had any lack, and you were always full. That's the illustration that he gives. So it's about more about the heart than it is about the amount. Does that make sense? So he quotes them, and he's quoting them to Corinth, and he's making the point like... He's starting, and this is the beginning of more, where he's saying, like, you're not going to outgive God. And if you try to collect to yourself or hold to yourself in order to have plenty, you will not end up with plenty. And we'll, we'll qualify that more. Because there are plenty of greedy people that end up with plenty and die with plenty. So we're not making some weird law that, like, if you're greedy, you won't have money. In our world, it's very much the opposite, right? If if, if you give your life for money, there's a very good chance in the United States of America you're going to end up with lots of it. Verse 16, But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. So he says Titus was concerned just like I was. The concern is that you're not going to fulfill what you said you would do. Right? That's the concern. So he said Titus was very much just like, yeah, I'm worried about that too. And then he's all enthusiastic about it. Like, I'm going to go help these people. <laughs> so he, Titus, on his own uh, appeal, and uh, decides to go to them in enthusiasm. And in verse 18, And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. Yeah, we don't know who this is. He's never identified But I feel like if you're gonna go down in history, going down as the history as the guy that all the churches really like, seems legit. Seems like a solid title. I wouldn't mind having that on the old epitaph. Right? Who was this? Who's buried here? I don't know. But it was some dude that all the churches liked. He was a solid person. She was a solid person. Says, for what is more, he was chosen. That is this, this anonymous person who's praised by all the churches. He was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. So Paul going on here, now he's talking about how they're going to handle the offering. And this is important because there's some humility here, right? Paul says that this person who's praised by all the churches was actually chosen by the churches and told to Paul, he's going with you. How would you feel? What if Paul says, I'm Paul. I'm the apostle. You can trust me. I'll travel alone with the money. It's no big deal. I'll make sure it gets there. I'm God's man. I'm good. Why in the world would you question me? You have to trust me, you know, or whatever the, somebody might be tempted to say. No, Paul just says, yeah, there's this guy, all the churches like him. The churches said, hey, Paul, take this guy along to make sure you're doing good with the money. Paul said, okay, I'm in. Amen. This is the kind of humility we want to have in a church, in in a church leadership and in a a method for the money. You know, we take certain pains that, like, for example, you know, we have a box in the back. And so uh, when that box in the back is emptied at the end of a Sunday, we go back there. I don't go back there, but two people go back there. They count it together. There's never one person with the money before it's counted. That never happens. There's always an accountability trail with the money. Because we want to be able to show anybody at any time, this is exactly how it got counted. These are the two signatures of the people that counted it. And you can say, well, what if they steal the money? Then they steal it. I mean, there just comes a point where are we going to all pile in there and count it? How many people, I mean, we want to be wise, right? I'm not trying to make sarcastic jokes about not being wise, but my point is, like, there does come a time where you have to say, I'm trusting the Lord, Right? But if you want to see how the money gets spent, we, you know, we can print out a, pro, a profit and loss statement for you. I, you know, I can, I haven't got, we haven't looked at yet what the, the VBS costs. Usually VBS is between $3,000 and $4,000. And the reason is because we do a dinner afterwards and we, we pay for everything. We buy the shirts for the kids because we want the kids to be able to come here and be able to just not have to, hey, it's 20 bucks to come hear the gospel. You know, we don't want to do that. I don't blame churches that want to charge, but God's blessed us, and you know what? We have four grand. I think right now in the bank, it's been a while, it's probably been like a month since I asked. I think our savings right now is about $54,000. Last time I asked. Anything you want to know, we're glad to tell you. You know, we're glad to, you know, uh, whatever you want to know, we'll provide it for you. It's all on paper. It gets done by Dana. She's our accountant, um, and, and, and so on. I don't ever see the money. I don't count the money. Uh, you know we have a we have a an elder board. We make our our the vast majority of our uh, financial decisions together. And then when I say vast majority, it's because I don't like call the board and be like, "Hey, there's some placemats at Costco that Dana wants for the church. Should I buy them? They're twenty bucks." So I don't I don't call the board about that kind of stuff. But if we're gonna do like the you know we just put the carpet in, And it's thirty-seven thousand dollars for the carpet, right? The the paint by the grace of God, was because somebody decided, you know what, I'll buy the church paint and I'll have my company paint it for free. Otherwise, the, the paint was going to cost about, I can't remember, 22000 God has always provided for it. And we're more than happy to show you every penny we've ever spent. More than happy to. Why don't we have meetings every year? I'm going to be 100% honest with you because I don't want fights. Right, wrong, or indifference, that's why we don't do it. We're happy to show it to people on an individual basis. But in my experience in the past, when you just open it up, you will get, because everybody has different value systems, and you'll get like, why did we spend this much on pencils? Right? And I'm not trying to be a jerk. You'll just get that. And I, you know what? If it said $1,000 for pencils, that would be a reasonable question, right? But when it says 22 it's not as reasonable, is it? But to somebody, it might be. So if you're like, why don't we have a yearly meeting? That's why we don't. But if you would like to see our finances, talk to me afterwards, and I'll have Dana. She'll kill me because it's VBS week, but I'll have Dana print up a profit and loss, and you can see where all of our money has gone year to date because we have nothing to hide. We try to be generous with our money, with the church's money. We try to be generous in the sense that uh, you know we have people in the body that have uh, like a housing need or something, we don't pay anybody's rent forever, but we try to help with that. With people in the body that need food, we try to help with that. So the way I was brought up in my Christian life is that we, as a church, try to give liberally, and God has always provided for us. Always, He's always been good to us. You know, we've had lean times, especially in the beginning. It's been a long time since we've had lean times, but that the Lord is still provided. So. That's kind of where we're coming from on it. We, 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 we want to be open about it. So anyway, Paul says, hey, yeah, we took this gift. Or we took this guy, I'm sorry, to help us with the gift. A, a guy that the, the church has said, you're taking this guy. we said, okay. He says, because we want to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. It's important, especially in this world. What is, what is one, of the most, the, the, one of the biggest complaints about churches in the world? Money right? Ripping people off. And some of that's very true. That's why it's such a stigma, right? And so it's important that we operate in a way where we're saying, hey, we're going to be accountable and open before God and before other human beings. Verse 22, in addition, we are sending with them our brother, who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous and now even more so because of this of his great confidence in you as for so there's, there's another person they're sending as for Titus he is my partner and co-worker among you as for our brothers they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ so he's he says i'm sending a personal representation in Timothy and the excuse me, the churches are also sending people so that we can all carry this gift, which, which he calls a, uh, it's, it's a really, it's a large gift. It's a wealthy gift. It's a lot of money, a liberal gift. It's a lot of money. Um, I'm sorry. So then verse 24, therefore show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that, so that the churches can see it. So he's telling them all these people are coming to get this money from you that you promised that, they, that you would give. So when they get there, don't treat them poorly. Treat them well so that they can go back to their churches and they can encourage their churches that that you guys are fulfilling what you said you would do. When people are faithful to their word, it grows, right? It's encouragement. So Paul's saying, make sure that you're doing that. Chapter 9, we're going to do chapter 9 in like 13 minutes. Here we go. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia, remember Achaia is that big um, uh, island to the south of them, that, that kind of that whole area, telling that since last year, you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. This is kind of a heavy word. So he tells them, he says, we're sending these guys ahead of us. These guys are going to show up. Make sure you treat them well because they're from all the churches and Titus is my personal representative. They're going to show up because I've been telling everybody around Macedonia how eager you were to help. And they already did. They already fulfilled. They basically said, yes, we'll help. And then boom, they did it. Whereas Corinth said, yes, we'll help. And evidently, maybe, depending on the translations differ, maybe they gave a little bit, but it seems to be more likely they they said, yes, we'll help. Come back for it. And so he's saying, I'm sending these guys ahead to take the offering because that money needs to be ready when I get there. He says, if that money is not ready when I get there and the Macedonians get there, then I'm going to be shamed because I was talking you up in front of all these people. Not to mention you're going to be shamed because you said a year ago that you would do this and you haven't done it yet. So while he's acknowledging their eagerness, it's interesting. He's not questioning it. He's not saying you're not eager. He's not saying you're not earnest. He's saying you had all these things, but now it's time to show that those things were real. Does that make sense? So, but it's still heavy. It's still difficult. It's, fa- it's fidelity, though. So he goes on from there, and he says, uh, verse 5, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised then it will be ready as a generous gift not as a grudgingly give, not as grud, one grudgingly given also he he uh, he adds here he says i want the gift to be ready before i get there because i don't want it to look like i bullied you into a gift he goes i don't want people to say well yeah you guys finally gave this cuz paul's here now so he's not going to rip on your church some more and some more you know, letters He says, no, I want it to be done before I get there so that everybody will understand you're not grudgingly giving it, that you're fulfilling gladly the commitment that you made. Verse 6, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So now he gives another example and this is, or, or premise, I should say. And this is all over Scripture. So he gives a, a, a farmer or an agrarian type of uh, metaphor. And he says, whoever sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. And whoever sows generously, reaps generously. Right? So if I'm a farmer and I have a bag of seed, and I throw a couple seeds on the ground, am I going to have a massive harvest? No. I sowed sparingly, so I'm going to get sparingly. Right? But if I have my bag of seed, and I just start throwing seed everywhere, now I'm sowing generously, and so my harvest will be generous, right? Now, unfortunately, this is one of the the, the verses that gets misused by people all the time who just want money. I don't know how many flyers I've gotten over the years from different uh, ministries, even to our own church, where the heading is this. And then for some reason, the magic number is $1,000 or $2,000. And you got to plant the seed, brother. you got to plant it. And you plant the seed today of $2,000, and God's going to give you $4,000 tomorrow. It's how it's going to happen. Praise the Lord, brother. We're going to do this. We're going to bring it in. We're going to plant the seeds, brother, and close the doors. We're giving till it hurts, my brothers, right? We're chuckling because that's real. It's disgusting, but it's real. And it's when human beings use the greed of other human beings to make giving an investment scheme. To say, if you give now, then God will give more. If I'm giving to God, so he'll give me more. Something dramatic has gone wrong in my thinking. Because I'm not giving to get. I'm giving to bless. Right? The only getting I'm hoping to get is maybe the joy that these people get to eat. Right? That they get to wear clothes. So it's important that we don't buy into people or ministries that will abuse these policies or these these premises to come up with a twisted ideology. right? Instead, he's going to talk about the, the reaping. The reaping that we get. But first, let me see this. He says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. You know, when Ananias and Sapphira, when they stand before Peter, you guys remember that in the beginning there in Acts? It's when they're basically collecting money because 3,000 people just got saved and they're mostly from out of town because it's the Feast of Pentecost. They have no place to stay. They have no food, right? Um, And so everybody starts selling stuff to make sure they can provide for all these new believers. So Ananias and Sapphira, they have some land, and they sell the land. And then when, uh, I can't remember if it's the husband or the wife that goes first, but when one of them comes up to Peter, and they, he, he, I think it's the husband, he delivers the money, yeah, it is the husband, he delivers the money to Peter, but they only give half the money. And Peter asks them, is this all the money? And I'm assuming that's the Holy Spirit thing, because that's a weird question to ask. But he says, is this all the money? And the husband says, yeah, it's all the money. And Peter says, why did you lie to me? But because you haven't lied to me, you've you've lied to God. And he dies. But Peter makes the point to him, I should say this before he dies, he says, when you had the land, wasn't it yours? The point is, you didn't have to sell your land, Ananias. Nobody twists your arm to sell the land. He says, while it was in your possession, wasn't it yours? Didn't you own it? You didn't have to sell it. And then he says, after you sold it and you had the money, wasn't the money all yours? You didn't have to give it. So the issue wasn't that he gave. The issue wasn't that he gave half the money. The issue is that he and his wife hatched a plan to try to develop status in the church as giving people. They tried to utilize money that they didn't want to get rid of to further themselves in the church. So much twisted stuff going on there, right? How they, how they were trying to find their satisfaction, how they find, found their identity, all these different things in front of other people. And so it's a different time. So the Lord, you know, validating Christianity, the Lord kills them both. They just die on the spot because they both tell the same lie. So in this, in the, in what, what Paul's saying here is a very similar idea. Your money is yours. It's from God. It's given by God. He gave you the body and the brain that enables you to earn it. All these things, but It's yours. So when you're going to give, if you're going to give, then we ought to give from a place of w- what we want to give. From what our heart says to give. Now he's going to address this, because we might say, well, my heart doesn't want me to give, so I'm gold. I'll just keep what I want. That's not exactly healthy. He says there from verse, because he says, for God loves a cheerful giver. So he, he's not looking for people. The idea of a cheerful giver, it's where we get our word, the Greek there is where we get our word Hilarious. So the idea is that somebody who's like, is it time for the giving yet? Where's the box in the back? Oh, this is my favorite part. I'm slamming my money in there. That's the idea of a hilarious guy. I can't wait for Jerusalem to eat. Yes, I'm in. Like, that's the idea of the giving. And so it can be tempting for us to be like, well, I'm not a cheerful giver, so I just won't give. It works out, but it's win-win. God doesn't get a grudgy gift, and I get to keep my stuff. So this is really great, right? We can think that way. But we have to ask ourselves some hard questions. If I don't want to give, why? Why don't I want to give? And the other hard question is this. What do I give to cheerfully? Is it, is it my... And again, I'm not against, like, coffee drinks. But if I can pay five or six bucks a day for a coffee drink, but I come to church and I'm like, eh, forget about the people in need. If I can cheerfully and easily do that, and again, I'm not saying don't buy coffee drinks, and if we see each other at Kiss of Mist, you know, someday, don't be like, oh, that person, oh, ho, ho. no, we're not saying that. We're not saying that, right? We're not making any judgments. We're not making any standards that you can't, you know, enjoy those. We're not saying that. All we're saying is if we find it in our heart that we're grudging givers to God's work, but I can easily spend 50 bucks, you know, a week on coffee. Is there a priority issue in my life? Could I, you know, I'm not saying you have to go drink Folgers or anything crazy like that. I'm just saying, maybe we could. (laughs) I know some of you are like, I like Folgers. What are you talking about? (laughs) I learned to like Folgers when I worked on an ambulance because you just like roll into any gas station and you're like, uh. But all that to say is, where are our priorities and what are we able to give cheerfully? And if we can't give cheerfully to what God is doing, maybe we want to review that. He goes on from there, he gives a quote, As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, and their righteousness endures forever. And that's a quote, and we don't have time, we're not going to cover that quote. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Oh, I skipped verse 8, forgive me, verse 8. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So this is the point I wanted to make. When all these people that want to say, you know, you sow the seed, you give your grand, you're going to get two next week. That's bunk. God may and he will supply your needs. Right. That's the promise. But when you look at what the promise is, if you're a giving person, God will always give you what you need To be a giving person. He you can never outgive him. You can never give too much to him. That he will always continue to provide everything, not everything that you want, but everything that you need to be uh, helpful and I don't know, potent in his work. He'll always do that. We'll never outgive him. Then the other side of this in verse 10, what we just read, he says that he will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Now he's not saying that you'll become more righteous by giving because we know that our righteousness is in Christ, right? We don't gain righteousness by works. That's never a thing. But the harvest of my righteousness, in other words, that there will be something of fruitfulness that comes out of me obeying God and will, God will continue to multiply that. that, that you and I can have influence in this world of eternal value through filthy lucre. That's the implication there. It's incredible, right? That something as physical as money, when used correctly, can be something that God gets eternal fruit. It's 12 o'clock. We'll just read this last section here. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it is also overflowing in many expression of thanksgiving. This money that you're giving is causing people to see God's goodness through you And they are worshiping God because of it. Is there a better fruit to get out of money? I mean, eating is nice, but spiritual I mean, that's that's legit. And then he goes on there and he says, Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God. And the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace uh, God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He goes on to say that when when these guys show up to church and all of a sudden the brethren start handing out money and food and the gift that you guys gave, it's going to cause these people to be so thankful to God. Then they're going to realize where this money came from and they're going to pray for you. And God's gonna answer those prayers. And so there's this idea when he says, praise the, you know, praise the Lord for his indescribable gift. The indescribable gift is that by simply allowing God's grace and to, to maneuver it to a place in my heart where I'm willing to give, all of a sudden God's kingdom begins as like this perpetual building where the money comes in, and then that begins, that, that starts praise. And then the praise ends up with, with thanksgiving for the people that gave the money. Then the thanksgiving ends up for prayers for the people that gave the money. And then later on, when you have need, they're going to give money. You, know, you have this whole thing that, that, that Paul's designing here. So is the, is the application from this, you better give to it hurts to our church? No, it is not. That is not the application. The application is, if you... Or I, for that matter, are grudging in our giving, it's because we have a problem with our priorities. That's what it boils down to. We're esteeming the security of money or the pleasure of money over the life of our brethren. Now, for us, many of us, it's important to look beyond just the people around us. The United States is kind of the Corinth of the world financially. We have poverty here. I'm not saying we don't. I mean, you can drive two blocks down the peninsula and see some pretty spectacular poverty. But there's like believers around the world that if you were to give them 30 bucks, that's a month wage for them. The Lord leads you. I'm not saying you should do anything. But 30 bucks for us is, some, for some of us, is, you know, less than our coffee budget for the week. And to think that there might be somebody, some man or some woman out there, that if I provide that for them, they can have a full-time job with the gospel in their country. It's just an idea. It's just an idea. Again, it's hard because I'm not trying to pressure anybody, and I want you to know that. I'm just trying to give examples. So I don't want anybody to walk out here and feel like, oh, James is pressuring me to give his church money or some you know, Samaritan purse or something. I'm not. I'm just saying let's evaluate where we're at, honestly before the Lord, and if he calls us in some way to be givers, then let's give. And let's not worry about the ramifications. Because he is guaranteed that if we're willing to move forward in giving, that he will bless us back. Maybe not too grand next week, but righteousness will abound and we'll never go without. That's the promise. So, let's pray, huh? Father, thank you for your loving kindness and your great mercy. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, look into your word and to consider it. Thank you for your promises of provision, your promises of uh, fruitfulness if we listen to you. And so I just pray you lead each one of us as individuals how we can be uh, giving individuals, and as a church, how we can be a giving church. Lord, we thank you for all your kindness to us. Thank you for all your provision. Thank you that, you know, I think the vast majority of us in here, we're going to eat lunch, and then we're going to eat dinner, and then we're going to sleep in beds. And we praise you for that. And if there's somebody here who's not going to do that, or we want to help with that. So we just pray that you would be exalted in our hearts and that we would follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.